0: If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode on the podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Javier Paul. Jeffia or I call him Jay for short. We met years and years ago and recently reconnected and I absolutely love this conversation. Jay works in the health tech space. He works internationally helping organizations to refine their products, secure investment and access markets and our national health system. In this episode, Jay gives us his number one piece of advice on people trying to sell into our national health system. He talks about how he's used his connections to attract international clients. He talks about his mum, so nice they work together. He talks about his long-term ambitions around disrupting thinking and serving underrepresentative markets and founders. Talk about how Jay and his organization are trying to take better care of themselves and Jay shares his views on investing. He is not giving us financial or investment advice. (laughs) Disclaimer. Jay is a business owner and invests in other people's organizations. That may be very different to what some of you do, but I really would encourage you to listen to all of this. There's so many leadership tips and lessons in here. You don't have to be a business owner to apply some of this stuff or to be able to relate to this conversation. But enjoy, share it, and I'll see you in the next one. Hi, Jay. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing?
1: Uh, very good today. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying the, the weather we're getting, yeah, and the weekend nice. is fast approaching. So, <laughs> very good.
0: It's really nice. So, we met a few years ago when you work for an organization called Practice Unbound kind of loosely kept in touch and then you kind of back on the scene and we had such a good chat as like you've got to come on the podcast.
2: Well uh, thanks
1: for inviting me Uh, I'm really enjoying having reconnected for one but also getting back into into my old world again so seeing some of the stuff I used to do so yeah really enjoyed it thanks for having
0: me. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today?
1: Um, So my name is Jerva Paul. I am an economist by training, um, though I don't really apply too much of it these days. I worked my majority of my career in the NHS. um, So I worked with Practice Unbound in scaling products into the primary care system of the UK. So uh, amongst GPs, we took innovations that we would develop within our practices in Brighton and Hove and then take those to kind of national scale. My role there was as a commercial lead. But uh, after that, I came and set up uh, Harbor, which uh, is our accelerator incubator for health tech companies. We work with innovators across the world. So we work with people in the US, in Australia, New Zealand, in India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan. So we get to work in some pretty uh, interesting and crazy places in the heights of places like Birmingham, where I currently am. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: uh, So we, we do work in some very weird and wonderful places and we get to see some really amazing technologies that we think at least are going to change the face of how healthcare is delivered. And that's what really kind of drives us to do what we do is is how can we help those innovators reach more people? So get new customers, go out and work with different innovators that are doing similar things in other countries. Um, How do they get access to new capital? So how do they work with the big VCs, private equity funds, with individuals, high net worth individuals? And then also, how do you build better products? So my co-founder, John, Is our product evangelist. He's forgotten more things about building products than I've ever known. And he's very good at helping people think through how do you design and build products that really respond to people's needs and the users' needs rather than you know designed from a room four walls where someone's coming up with an idea about how to change a system.
0: Given all of your experience today, what advice do you give to people and organizations when trying to sell their products and services to the NHS?
1: the first piece of advice i always give people is to not assume the nhs is one buying organization and that's the thing that i think a lot of people get wrong is they say i really want to work with the nhs assuming the nhs is this big kind of all-encompassing power that you can go to that will just buy you and send you everywhere Particularly when we work with clients abroad who are looking to the NHS as a market that they want to work with, that is a common misconception, which I know you, Tara, will know better than most, that you know each different area has their own intricacies, whether you're working with primary care, secondary care, community care, there are different commissioners, different purchasers. Even within a single purchaser, you have so many different ideas that I, I think that the, that view of the NHS as a single body needs to be almost sort of broken down a little bit into this localised view of how do I make it correct for the person I'm talking to? Or how do I get my first project and then build that out when I'm looking at the NHS? That, that would be my biggest piece of advice is think small and then scale that up to, to something very nice and large, rather than assuming you can go to one person and get it bought immediately.
0: So when thinking about your portfolio of clients, do you have a niche? Because healthcare is huge. It's like, why would somebody come, go to you guys versus to go somewhere else?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's a question we've, been, we've pivoted so many times as a business. I think like lots of businesses that are in their early life, we've had to shape and change and adjust depending on what's happening in the market. How do clients work with us? What do people want? What are startups looking at? as ways of support. And for us, our real niche of clients is when people are looking to their next rounds of scale, when they've done an early MVP, when they've tested their product, have some early data coming back, but don't necessarily have all the pieces yet on how do we build that scale into other markets? How do we go out and get the right type of investment to make this go go forward? Those are the kinds of people that we really enjoy working with because We work with a smaller number of clients every year. We're not an accelerator that takes a large number of a large cohort. We only work with a small number of people because we want to embed ourselves within those organizations, work with them hands on to solve some of the more tricky problems that a startup has to deal with. And a and, you know, startup is constrained with resources and constrained with people. There's lots of expertise in specific areas, but you can't have all the 20 areas that you need to be able to, to take a, a business to scale all the time. And so we, we try and fill some of those gaps.
0: And how have you attracted international clients?
1: Um, it's been because mainly... The team that I work with internally, we've all worked in various different geographies. So I used to work with KPMG in India, for example, and and you covered South, Southeast Asia. So we had a lot a lot of kind of experience of working in markets like Southeast Asia and, and in those areas where you develop relationships with people and you start to build out the, that uh, pipeline. I think one of the biggest pluses that we have internally is also our advisor network. So our advisors... Are, are some of the kind of industry's largest uh, kind of players in in health tech and health innovation. And so we work with people like uh, Ahmed Mukim, who's over at IQVIA and covers IQVIA Asia, You know, works with Thai in Mumbai. So he's seeing startups every day. Um, and my mom is actually our board chair, um, and I work really well with my mom which so is, cool. is actually a pleasure to, to, to be able to say and she uh, she's actually our strongest strongest source of deal flow because she has people coming to her constantly because of her profile and those they, using those people to your advantage always really helps you to be able to drive better deal flow, more diverse deal flow, you know getting clients from various different places. but partners, we work with loads of partners who send us deals and say these guys would be great to work with you. And that's that's kind of how we source most of our, our projects
0: tell us about your mum obviously you've told me before and um, but why is your mum such a big deal
1: oh my mom's my mum's a big deal and she would she would probably say that she isn't but she is a big deal she uh, my mum uh, and I have worked together since um she was actually diagnosed with with breast cancer when I was at school and she instead of deciding to you know go through chemotherapy and rest uh, she decided to set up a business and that was kind of the inspiration for me to go on my own entrepreneurial journey and she she went out and set up a primary care business in one of the toughest places on the planet, which was Delhi in North India. And I was just amazed about the fact that most people, when they're going through chemotherapy, decide to stay in their bedroom more <laughs> often than not. And she was traipsing around, um, you know, Delhi, uh, opening up clinics to serve the bottom of the pyramid in uh, in India. Which, so ever since then, I've worked with her on on whichever projects I've been involved with or whichever project she's been involved in. And now she sits as our board chair. She, she keeps us all honest and makes sure that we can, uh, we can do what we're supposed to do and, and uh, obviously has a, a large amount of work in her own right. She's the senior medical advisor for AXA, helping them in their emerging customer team to be able to bring new products to customers across the globe. And is also part of the team working with KPMG in their emerging markets teams as well. And, and is doing amazing work in bringing universal healthcare coverage to the Middle East at the moment.
0: Have you got siblings?
1: I do. I have an older brother. What does he do? My elder brother is a doctor. And he's, a, he's been, since he was six years old, he was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And that's the thing that he'd said. And lo and behold, he's got and done it. <laughs> so, uh, he's a trainee GP these days. Uh, was a surgeon, actually decided to make the jump into general practice, which I think was a very smart move. And yeah, he's 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 doing very well at the moment.
0: Impressive family. So one of the things that we were speaking about is actually... Where you said that your mum's kind of inspired your entrepreneurial journey, I met you when you worked for Practice Unbound. Did you always know that you wanted to set up your own business? And when was the point you said, I'm, right, I'm going to do it by myself?
2: Yeah, I've even at Practice Unbound, I was very lucky to be enabled to go and explore various different other things as well. I mean, one of the things that I will I'll say about that, uh, the group that we worked with there was they were very, very good at encouraging you to think differently, encouraging you to think about different um, avenues for your career. And and they gave me a fantastic opportunity to work in a portfolio way um, that allowed me to to be able to explore some of these avenues. And and I set up another business while I was working at at Practice Unbound, which, you know, we we always talk about the side hustles in my current line of work. Um, there's always a side hustle going on somewhere, um and there's always something that's happening. And and I think the point at which I realised that I really want to make this, I really want to make the jump fully into running my own business was I, I had a conversation with my co-founder who I was working with a little bit at the time, but very hands off. And we we both came together and said, well, if we're going to do this, we need to do it now. And and being half one foot in the camp, one foot out of the camp was leading to less opportunity for the business overall and then that becomes the moment where you realize well if i'm going to do this there's the best point in my life where this is going to be possible so let's just go and make a go of it and, and i'm very lucky to have been enabled by my family by the jobs i've had before making me financially sustainable enough to be able to make that jump and make the investment into my own business and be able to do it because that's it is a big part of setting up your own businesses, making sure you feel secure and stable
0: mm-hmm. I like that. So you have opened my, you and my sister, but we had a conversation about investment and it's been really, really helpful and talking, we were talking about um, how you want to grow your businesses and what I see, it's very personal and sometimes you can get caught up in thinking I, you know, so-and-so is building this really big organization that's what I want to do even if you don't or it's kind of frowned upon if you've got you know like if you're maybe you're a one-man band or you know like you want it small and we had a conversation around my kind of ambitions and I want portfolios and when you think investment for people that are listening I think the misconception is people think you have to be a millionaire to be an investor. So could you tell us about how your investments and how much money you started with to give people a better understanding and hopefully give people some food for thought, like we can all be investors.
2: I'm a very strong believer in democratising investment. Obviously, haven't started my life in the institutional capital career or started my, my, my business career in the institutional capital world, I was around you know, billions and billions of dollars changing hands where people were exchanging these big investments in places like the US. And and I was very keenly aware of the fact that this is not available to people like you and me, that even though these markets are making money I, in my community, I'm not seeing that money. I grew up in, in Birmingham, I grew up in Hale, a place called Hale-Zoen, which is, which is um on, on the outskirts of Birmingham. You know, that, that money wasn't hitting communities like mine, but there were people there who had, you know, amounts of money that they could spend in some of these markets. And so uh, my big thought when I kind of became, I, I, Probably would say financially independent-ish was you know, I don't want my money to be passively sitting around in a bank account where you know, in reality today bank accounts aren't delivering you any interest anyway. So you know you don't want it to just be sat there doing nothing. And in reality, that led me to just start researching, start exploring. I started off very small in the hundreds of pounds, just saving a bit of money and then investing in whichever products I would be able to invest in based on the minimums that you're you're supposed to put in. So. That led me into things like cryptocurrencies, and I've invested in some of those, and new blockchain technology, listed securities, that going on stock exchanges. But the place I find the most joy in actually deploying capital is in in startups. So I I invest some of my own money in in startups that that I find interesting, that we meet along the way. And particularly, I like investing in founders. I I invest in teams and people, not necessarily just in the idea itself, but the people driving it are really important to me and that has led me to a portfolio that's grown over time which I, i'm very pleased about but actually i think more people could get involved in so you know tools that are democratizing that access to products that haven't been available to general population in the past i'm i'm really pro things like angel list which you can invest very easily and frictionless on startups across the world people you may not have met before or Ember, which is using hedge fund techniques for cryptocurrencies. There are some really fantastic tools out there that are that are really democratizing this access. Um, none of this is financial advice, by the way. This <laughs> <laughs>
0: and what are I suppose? And what are you, so? Lots of people say we invest in the founder. What is it that? I know mean, it's very personal, but for you, what are you looking for? And I'm sh- I suppose there's many camps but one school of thought would be I'm looking for investment I think it's going to make me rich think it's going to help me grow really quickly other people thinking oh I'm not sure I don't want to give control away from my company like I'd like slow and steady it's what what sort of person are you looking for?
2: I think it really depends on what the business needs um, that we're looking at so I really get a really good buzz off Uh, meeting a founder who's got fantastic star quality for that business. And you can see, you know, that that business is going to go really far because of the founder that's there Uh, and that they've got the right skills to be able to work on the subject domain that they're in. But they've also got some of the skills that you'd require to just be able to generally manage the business. They're able to communicate really well, particularly when you're out raising money. If you've made the decision that you're going to go down this venture capital route and you're going to go out and raise money. You've got to be a fantastic communicator because close, raising and closing investment rounds is pretty much entirely about communication. And I'll tell you, I mean, a quick story of the latest company that we've invested in and worked with is a company called Biosapien over in the United States. And the founder there, there was
1: instant alignment between me and her when we first met her name is Kathedra. and she's one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life but also you know you resonate with people based on their story uh, she's got a fantastic story about how she came up with the idea of the company which is related to her personal experience of cancer um, or her father's personal experience of cancer that resonated really strongly with me but I could also see the vision she was able to articulate the vision of where this company is going the very early stage they've only just done you know one or two animal trials and in this on this technique and this this um idea that they've got but I was instantly bought in met her in January and and have invested in her in the round that's closing at the moment.
0: Cool so also you mentioned what the business needs how do you know what the business needs?
1: Um, it's a really good question we always talk about the skeleton in the closet in 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 my business there's there is always a skeleton even though it, on the face of it a business might look incredible might look fantastic and the, all the glossy pieces put together but there's always a skeleton somewhere and <laughs> we always find it when we start working with the business we go through a much more structured process now than we did when we first started when we When we first started and we were finding our feet, there was a lot of kind of pushing and probing, trying to find our own niche around how do we assess a business. It takes you through the normal stuff like assessing the team, assessing uh, the market space, looking at how big that market might be, looking at where the right players might be to distribute that technology, who might be the right partners. So there's a lot of pieces that come together. It does change depending on what business area they're in so biotech for example or the typical like hard science type routes that go through the clinical trial process they require different things you know you've got to have a really strong regulatory background you need to have people around you that could support you through that process and you need to know a lot of the kind of hardcore scientific rigor whereas if we're looking more in the digital health space that one of the big things we look for is how do people iterate their product do they stand still or do they change the product over time And do they respond to their users' needs? And what's the process by which they get their users' need into the core fabric of building the product? And that's been something, a journey that we've gone on to get there has been looking at lots of founders that do it well and looking at lots of founders that don't do it so well and then looking at the outcomes between them about how they raise, how they go on to scale, all that kind of stuff.
0: Do you think enough NHS leaders are asking the same question around what does this business need? Because I think, from a business perspective, that if you run a business or you're helping other people to run their businesses, that so it's a question that comes up all the time. But I'm not, without being disrespectful, I'm not, I don't come across NHS leaders that are really saying, independently of me and my job, and my status, and my title, what does this business need? What does this service need? I think I don't hear it enough, and I think that people don't always ask it because. They're including them, they're thinking a little bit about themselves and their position that they hold.
1: Yeah, it's been a problem, I think, for many years within the NHS has been one of the structures often constrain us into thinking, Okay, I I work within the CCG or I work within the hospital. And so your island becomes your island in a way. And and breaking that down, the best leaders I've seen within the NHS are are people like Cattle smith who, who I don't think works within social care anymore but she she was you know fantastic at being able to move into agency and being able to to work with different people from different groups to be able to coalesce a group together to, to solve a specific need and like I said you start small and then you build from there some of the best projects that I saw when I worked in the NHS and with social care and others were, you're tackling a very small problem and then learning that you are able to solve that problem and then being able to scale that up and then work with other people in different ways and, and bring agencies together to do that. and I think that that isolation that people feel when you work within your specific agency and then you you build up your own island of power there and it, it becomes hard to then see wider what's going on you know with a, with a wider context. But one thing I will say, uh, so if you look at like Tony Young and the program clinical entrepreneurs program, that he set up. I mean, it it's a really good example of finding businesses or, or seeding businesses within the NHS that are, that are built by people that really know some of the yeah. core, like hard coal faced problems being faced on the ground. And there's some amazing companies that have come out of that program, Ash and MediShout, for example, amazing ability to be able to work on his own personal experience of not being able to find equipment within a hospital. Simple problem that he was trying to solve and and was able to solve that using technology and has done really fantastically well from doing that. So I think there are people asking the question. There are people trying to solve the problem in different ways. So there's the kind of Tony Young approach. There's approaches of integrating services that are are working across the country in various different ways. I think we'll all come down to will be what's right for that area. and Do they have the right leaders who are asking those questions? And I think we're starting to see some of those leaders emerge, but it's a slow process.
0: So what would you say is your... What's your strength if you've been thinking about all the things that you've done? What is the thing that you do really, really well and people look to you for?
1: I think my, my core strength when it comes to the business that I, we work in today is helping to simplify businesses to investors. And that's generally what I spend most of my time doing is when you're going out to larger institutional rounds of capital, how do you make this understandable in a way that people will respond to and then be able to invest in? So that's one particular area, but also how do you build the building blocks that allow you to then be able to build your scale? So what is it that you need to go out and get in terms of customers? What do you need to go out and get in terms of information? And then how do you use that to your advantage? Because it is slightly about the optics on on your business when you're coming to raising money and then going out to to larger expansion rounds into new markets. You need to be seen in the right way. So you need to be able to go out and get some of those data points that people really hang their hat on to be able to either procure your business into a market like Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or Pakistan or Thailand. They they think differently depending on you know the system that's there. And you need to have some of those data points if you're looking to markets like those. So that's where I think I, I find my most joy is helping companies
2: solve those problems.
0: So you took so before you talked about starting small and then you're always talking about scale. So Where do you, where do you, do you start small, but always thinking about scale? Or I listened to, I was really trying to think of the name. I listened to a podcast where they were talking. I may have been talking about Amazon and actually the um, Jeff Bezos was saying, everybody always talks about scale and trying to build a business for scale and trying to make your business attractive to investors because you can, demonstrate how big it's going to be but actually you start really 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 small it wasn't Amazon sorry it was Netflix and they did a test where I think they just put you know like a DVD and they sent it to themselves that was it and saying actually then you do it you know like you do it to house to house and then you might go to a college campus and then you might go to the next town and you do it that way versus and it was just tests it was like would this work But at the beginning, they didn't think this is going to be this, you know, as huge as it is now. It was just it was it was very, very local. And then it grew, whereas some people they've got an idea and think this can take over the world and they haven't tested it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that early testing, that really rapid user testing is something which is the I, I can't stress enough how important it is. Not just from uh, building the building blocks of your company, but also from allowing you those key data points that I was talking about around being able to get you that scale. Because if no one's used it or if people haven't been able to see it being used, then people instantly reject the idea and and say, well, it's not being used. So why would I back it? Whether I'm an investor or a purchaser, I, I will instantly have some skepticism to the thing. And we look at lots of different models on that. So uh, we worked in the early part of our business with a group called IDEO, for example, who built the original one-click Apple Mouse and they're a design specialist. And they used to tell us stories about the Nike shop in uh, in London uh, on Oxford Street, where they built like a foam cutout of the shop and walked people through the, the cutout and then asked some questions about how they experienced stuff you know john uh, my co-founder often talks about paper prototyping you know literally getting a a piece of paper prototyping something on it and testing it with a user very fast and we're currently getting a lot of our larger corporate clients who are doing kind of corporate-led innovation we're bringing them back into the small and saying well if you do this stuff really well it may take you three months to get this stuff done but what may have taken you a year in total afterwards get shortened down to three or six months because you're able to build on the, the knowledge base that you've built very quickly. And then so long as you build that into the fabric of the business and you keep it and you keep that inquisitive mindset, you that constantly learning mindset, then you you'll be fine at keeping your product relevant to the people that you're talking to. And that's that's I think the important thing about starting small.
0: So you've mentioned your founder and you've mentioned your strength. What does your, sorry, your co-founder, what does your co-founder bring to this partnership that you don't have?
1: Uh, he's able to translate J into real person speak. <laughs> um, which which I think is very important because I, I definitely live in a, in the more high, higher level and I, I will, I'll abstract things maybe too much. and they're not that often understandable to everybody that might be listening and things like that. So um, John is very good at bringing me back into your very practical things and, and we work very well with each other because of that. I couldn't think of working with someone else now because you know, we've worked four uh-huh. years together and he's such a lovely guy and we've we have built this relationship where we, we can challenge each other civilly. Uh, it doesn't have to be about an argument. We can yeah. disagree with each other even and, and even decide to back each other when we do disagree. And you've got to have that trust in your co-founders. I think that's the biggest thing. I would never now set up a business on my own. And we, one thing we look at is we we look at when businesses are single founder, when they don't have a co-founder alongside them, we actually have see that as an extra risk. We really like businesses where there's more than one co-founder in there because of the fact that it's a, it's a lonely place starting a startup mm-hmm. and being able to have that person next to you who you're kind of bouncing ideas off and, and being able to work with. That's a that's a very important thing, and very very quickly after John and I coming together, we also brought in a, another partner to the business called Omar, who I've worked with for for almost ten years, and, and I've known since university. So having people around you that you trust and that work with you really well and know how you work, that that's really important. But on a on a content basis. John's knowledge of products is very, very strong. And he built a product in Bangladesh that scaled to 5 million people within a 12-month period. Mm-hmm. You know, And his, his credentials when it comes to building products that people want to use are, are second to none. And, and his understanding of using some of those user-centered approaches is where I've learned a lot of the things that I know now today about user-centered design and human-centered design. It's all come from, from John's teaching. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So note to set, so when you give me investment advice. Now next, next on the list is get a partner. Okay.
1: (laughs) You can borrow John if you want.
0: (laughs) So so I hope you don't mind me sharing. So um, you've got diabetes. Um, You mentioned your mum had breast cancer. How are you guys looking after yourself and running these huge businesses well you're running businesses that have got the potential to have a huge impact and with that comes you obviously you love your business you've seen firsthand you know long health challenges so how are you looking after yourself
1: it's a it's a good question and something which we're trying to at the moment think through how we build into what we do not just for ourselves but also for everyone we work with you know one of the biggest things i really enjoyed about working at practice unbound was this idea of the whole self this idea of looking out after everybody around you not just your your people that you work with directly which is it's a belief and a and uh, a core fabric of how i like to work now theory theory is great practice is hard <laughs> when it comes to looking after yourself i think it's taken me a long time living with diabetes to really be able to be comfortable with seeing numbers that aren't very good. So, you know, if, if I see my blood sugars have gone out, you know, blaming yourself for those blood sugars going out is, is a very dangerous game, I think personally, and it's about like learning from it and being able to react to it. So knowing my stress and knowing where my stress comes from is a very important thing for me, Uh, being able to see the information. I mean, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes, 26, 27 years ago, um, this year. And I, when I was first diagnosed, you know, we were using drawing up insulin in pens and little syringes from two bottles and had to mix them together. And then, you know, give an injection of insulin and things like that. That that's, that's how I started my life with diabetes and and today i have a sensor which is connected to an insulin uh, connect to my phone which is connected to an insulin pump that's connected to my phone and the phone is driving the changes in my background insulin on a day-to-day basis
0: and did you build did you build that or have you got a new one since
1: yeah. I have used the Android APS system yeah. before, which is the self-designed, uh, self-built.
0: <laughs> such, you're such a geek. <laughs> I,
1: I am a nerd. It's, it is the biggest thing about me is I'm a nerd.
0: Although it's a, a geek, but it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing because, it, yeah, my listeners know my little one's got type 1 diabetes. And I hope that she really deeply understands the condition and how to manage it, and really understands the technology. Because I think when we last spoke, you said that you'd had the best levels that you'd had in ages.
1: Yeah, I'm currently working on CAM-APS, which is a regulated version of the Open APS systems. And I'm doing absolutely amazingly on it. And and this is the thing about the technology I've seen in the last, technology change I've seen in the last kind of 20 years, and, and why I think health tech has such a big part to play in the next kind of two decades of what we're going to see but I also bring it back and grounds me that one of the best biggest reasons why this technology has been so useful to me is I changed my doctor just before I went on it and my doctor Dr Doctor Hussein who's a, an endocrinologist in uh, in London um, he's one of the most fantastic doctors I've had and I've had some pretty impressive doctors when I've when it comes to my diabetes across the years and I mean Sufjan called me every Uh, you know two days while I went when I first went onto the system to Mm -hmm. ask me how things were going and he said tweak this setting or tweak that setting and like we were having good conversations about it and it went far beyond what I expected what my expectation was of care and so that human element of how the care and the technology was delivered to me was really important to the end outcome, I think. I don't think I would have done as well with the technology mm. if I didn't have that, that level of connectivity. And so so there's some really interesting things I've learned about, you know, particularly life with diabetes gives you a perspective on, on solutions and how solutions should be driven towards care. I, I've been very accepting of doing all my um, consultations over the phone.
0: Yeah. Um, one of
1: the greatest things about the pandemic is I don't have to go to the hospital every time I need to speak to a doctor. But I know lots of other people don't like that. So, yeah, it's it's down to personalization at the end of the day.
0: I think you've raised such a good point and our other guests have. But I think you, the health tech is great, but it will never replace a human element. And I think you need both. You need, well, you, depending on your condition, the tech can be so empowering and can be preventative and help you monitor it and help you really understand it. But having somebody at the end of the phone on teams, somebody to talk you through the highs and lows and somebody to just listen to you, you, it would be really sad if it got to a stage where the health tech, you know, that help, the tech was the solution or the answer. It can't be, I think in healthcare can, it can be really helpful, but there's still a role for the expert.
1: Even if you look at the um, the patient-designed diabetes solutions that we were talking about earlier, the the open APS or Android APS or Loop, which are the main ones, the communities that are built around yeah. those solutions are unbelievably strong. And you've got people like Tim Street, for example, in London, who who blogs about his own experience with these solutions. But you've also got everyday you know people who were non-technical when they first started looking at this stuff. I'd probably describe them as technical now. They have better understanding than some of the technical people I've met. Um, But they're all kind of self-taught and are teaching each other how So when you get, particularly I see it with parents of people with type 1, when they're first exploring, you know, solutions like Loop or whatever it might be, they're asking questions onto these groups. And then you'll have 20 people jump in and be like, you should look here and give me a call if you want to talk about it. And it's such an empowering thing. It's not just about the clinician patient relationship. I think the patient to patient relationship is just, is so
2: important.
0: Yeah. So you have mentioned a few names, a few female names when it comes to your investment portfolio. So there's lots of talk around female entrepreneurs it's it's harder to get investment does that ever play into your mind around and what and we all have unconscious biases like did any what biases come up for you when you see a founder that that is female
1: yeah I mean I've had to challenge my own thinking in this as well I mean I come from a a very liberal house I grew up in in a place where my parents got me to think very differently about compared to you know my community for example has been historically not thought very well of when it comes to you know equality between men and women and and looking down on people based on things like caste or religion and things like that but luckily I was very lucky to live in a house where I had a very strong female role model with my mom. You know, I had lots of strong female role models around me, but I still have some of those, like you say, unconscious biases yeah. from the world that we live in. And so, I, I, funny enough, we meet we meet more female founders today than I have them. You know, in in the past, you know, three or four years, and and you know, two of our portfolio or our, our portfolio that we're working with at the moment are are run by female founders. The industry as a whole is changing its shape to be able to respond mm-hmm. better to people who are not your typical founder. So. You know, people of color, um, women, particularly women of color. We're also seeing a lot more people on the other side of the line, investors who are women and setting up their own funds, general partners of funds. The biggest thing that I always see is that general partners of funds um, who are running these big venture capital funds are typically from the same mold. You know, they've typically been men, they've typically been older white men, but that's really shifting now. We're seeing more women as general partners. We're seeing more women working within the funds themselves. You know, We're seeing more people of color in, in these funds. And we're seeing funds emerging from places that we didn't expect to see them previously. We work a lot with uh, entrepreneurs in Africa at the moment. And we're seeing a lot more venture capital funds emerging in Africa, run by people of colour, obviously, there, responding to solutions, uh, responding to needs on the ground, rather than this idea of outwards in, where you've got venture funds that are looking at the opportunity that sits within Africa, which I still think is very important, but aren't necessarily on the ground seeing some of those problems. You know, people like Founders Factory have set up an African office and an African team that are doing this amazing work in building solutions on the continent. And I, if you told me 10 years ago that was going to happen, I would have laughed you out of the room, probably. Um, and I think it's it's a fantastic shift in the industry, but we've still got a long way to go. Do
0: you know, I could just, I just looked at the time. We're going to have to wrap this up. I could just keep talking talk to you for hours. I suppose to wrap it up, what is, what does your next three years look like? What are you hoping to achieve?
1: The long-term goal of the company was always to set up a fund of our own specifically to do some of the things we've talked about investing in un- underrepresented founders being one of the big things, investing in underrepresented markets being another one. Um, we're working with a company or we worked with a company in, in Bangladesh for example, fantastic founder with amazing experience, you know Harvard educated uh, founder. but because of the market they're in, attracting capital to it, that business in the UK or the US is you know raising a 100 million 200 million dollars easily. But raising you know five or six million dollars for that company becomes difficult because of the fact that they're based in Bangladesh, delivering amazing impact, but the understanding of the market is so small that you know you're unable to be able to do that. And so we we want to disrupt some of that thinking. We want to we want to open the world's eyes to places that may be a little bit different um, and people that might be doing things differently. And that's that's goal number one. Is we we still have that ambition. We know that we have a lot of skills that we need to pick up internally before we get there. And that's what we're doing at the moment is by working with founders in the way that we're doing investing small and low amounts of money of our own money, building the credibility so that other people may back us in the future and say you've you've made some good bets, you've 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 done your homework, you've done it well, you've built a track record, and then we can back you. And that's that's kind of where we sit at the moment over the next kind of three years for us is doing more of the same um the more immediate term of that is also taking one a little bit more time taking holidays that's we realized internally (laughs) that none of us took break for about a year and a half and we were all knackered so uh internally part of that looking after each other uh, was recognizing that we need to take a few more holidays and the uh, second point was we need to recruit so we know internally that, you know, obviously cash flow is cash flow and you need to have enough to be able to recruit people and all the rest of it. But one of the reasons why we've all been so busy is because of the fact that we don't have enough people internally. And and that's, that's a big thing for us is we're now going to embark on a journey to move beyond the three initial founders and, and start to look for the next layer of people that will support us to grow the company. So, yeah it's very very exciting days
0: yeah if people want to connect with you where is the best place to find you
1: you connect with me on linkedin um you can find me if you just type in Javier paul or you can connect with me on email it's uh, Javier j-a-i-v-i-r at harbour h-a-r-b-r dot i-o
0: thank you so much for time i really appreciate it I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on Join the newsletter letter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.